Did you know that the human brain expresses only two fundamental emotions, love and fear? From these two, all other emotions are experienced. As Christians, we're called to live in God's love. But how do we live in love or fear? Humans can have many types of fear. There's the fear of the unknown, pain, death, and fear of choices, just to name a few. When we live in fear, we react to instead of act against our fear. But when we love, we have excitement, generosity, trust, and courage. Love strengthens and empowers, whereas fear weakens and disables. Perfect love, like a light, casts out all fear. For it says, "Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand." Many times, our fears can be irrational. It's like believing in the boogeyman. The devil causes us to become fearful, but God is way bigger. When we give up our fears to God, we can live a full life in love that He has prepared for us. So, which will you choose, fear or love? We're week three of our Fear Not series, but before we get into that today, I want to say a word about Holy Communion. A year ago, some of us from our team went to a conference, and we had the conversation when we were there that maybe we should try having communion two Sundays a month. And so we talked it over, we came back, we talked together as a team, and we decided to to give that a shot. And so for the last year, we've had communion together on the first Sunday and the third Sunday of every month. Well, a year later, we revisited that conversation and said, how is it going? How is it working? What are we hearing from people? And as a team, we had a great conversation, and, and what we came to was this. Communion is something that should be a part of our life every day. Jesus is here present with us, and communion reminds us of that, of that and it reminds us of what it is that Jesus has done for us. And so we're making a transition from communion, where we have it on the first to the third Sunday. We're going to have it on the first, first Sunday. And then we're going to move to our care ministry, our life groups, our kids ministry, student ministries, um, Bible studies, all of those groups that we encourage you to be a part of during the week, every week, those are now going to be places where you can have communion together as small groups. So we're making that transition. If you want to read more about it in your Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34 is a great passage to help you get a handle on that. So we put a, a pin in our Acts series for this five-week series on Fear Not. We're going to get back to Acts but the first we, t- we talked about Moses, and we talked about Moses' fears, and his fear of his past, his fear of his inadequacy, his fear of, of failing, and how that got to the point where God was angry with him because Moses wasn't willing to do what God had called him to do. And then last week, Pastor Junior talked about Peter and how Peter literally stepped out of the boat at Jesus' bidding, and he walked across the water. And it wasn't until he started looking at the wind and the waves and, and paying more attention to the stuff around him that he was afraid of, Rather than having his focus on Jesus, he began to sink, and and he finally cries out and said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and picks Peter up. Finally, he he talked about the what-ifs and how what, what the enemy wants to do is to instill fear in us. But what God wants to do is to instill faith. That one has really stuck with me. Well, here's the thing. Every single one of us, every single one of us experiences fear over something. 
Maybe it's not something that you're caught up and you spend a lot of time dealing with fear. Maybe fear just is an oppressive presence in your mind all the time. But all of us experience fear and usually about different things. And many times those fears are completely irrational. When we stop back or step back on a better day and think about it, we realize that's absolutely ridiculous. But what happens is that our our brain sends this message that says we've got a reason to be afraid. And so that kicks in, and rather than overriding it with other thoughts, we end up feeling afraid, and sometimes we run, and sometimes we do crazy things. Fear, it seems, is kind of out there for us all around every corner. The Bible uses the word fear two ways. One of them is we should have a healthy fear, a, a love and an awe and a respect for God and for his power and his authority. Not to be afraid of God, but to understand that that God is fearsome in a loving way. And the other thing that it talks about is fear not. So when we have this healthy understanding, this healthy fear of God and of God's power and of God's love, God tells us when we're living in him that we can fear not, that we don't have to be afraid. That's why 2 Timothy 1.7, it says this, For you've not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and sound mind. Fear is contradictory to godly power. Fear is contradictory to God's love and to sound thinking. And, and, and what happens is we know God is real, right? We, we know God is real. We know God's power and we've witnessed his miracles in our lives. And yet still so often we act out of our fear rather than living in God's power and promises for us. So what we have to do is we've got to be conscious of guarding our hearts and our minds from being overcome by fear. And it's something that we actually have to think about because that kind of fear is unhealthy. That kind of fear is ungodly. So today we're going to look at this Old Testament character named Elijah. By the time we get to him here, he's he's an older guy. He's up in years a little bit. But Elijah knew God in a deeply personal way, and he knew God's power. He had seen God's power at work. So what I want to do is we're going to look at a couple of passages about Elijah. And and my hope is today that this isn't going to be preaching. My hope is that this is going to be encouraging, that you're going to see something of Elijah and his life and his thinking and his fears in you that you're going to be able to take hope from. So at this point, Elijah has uh, met up with Ahab. King Ahab, and Ahab has a wife, and her name is Jezebel. And they're not too happy with him because Ahab starts by giving him a hard time, calling him, all oh, you troubler of Israel. And these two kind of have this conversation. What it amounts to is, well, let's find out who's God's real. You serve Baal, and you serve Asherah, and you've got all these prophets for that religion. But, but Elijah's like, that, that's fake. That's not real religion. He says, so let's have, a, let's have a showdown. Let's have a contest. Let's just... Put things out there and let's see whose God is real. And so they agree to meet on Mount Carmel. So I got a couple of pictures for you from our, our most recent trip, courtesy of one of our visitors. This guy is Mike. Mike's awesome. Mike lives in, in the Holy Land. He uh, lives in Jerusalem. He's been tour guide for me twice. What he's pointing to is the Jezreel Valley. And there's this little line of trees you can see just over his left wrist. That's actually the Kishon River. It's kind of the Kishon Creek. But there's not a lot of water in the Holy Land, so they call it the Kishon River. Um, today, there's irrigation and there's all kinds of farming stuff. Back in the day, it was more of a desert. The next picture here now is a better view of the valley looking up from the top. To your right is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the left is the Sea of Galilee. So where this building complex is now is the top of Mount Carmel. There was no buildings there. 
And it's not a mountain the way we think of it out west, but it's the highest hill in an awful long way. That's where this is happening. So they agree to meet up at, at this hillside. They, they agree, we're going we're gonna to each offer a sacrifice, and we're going to see what happens. And so if you're at your Bibles, First Kings, starting in uh, chapter 18. So uh, Ahab says to all the people, verse 20, of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, how long... Will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. See, the people felt pretty good about this contest because Baal was the one that was in charge of weather and all the the physical stuff that happened around him. So Elijah says to the people, I, even I, am the left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. What he's saying is 450 against one. So here's the deal. Let two bowls be given to us. Let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people says, it's well spoken. What did they believe? That Baal sent lightning. They figured they got this one covered. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. So they took the bowl that was given to them and they prepared it and they call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God, either he's He's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now he's taunting them to say that he's off thinking and doing something else, or maybe he went to the bathroom, or maybe he went somewhere else, and he's nowhere to be found. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on the ground. They're sending themselves into a a frenzy. As midday passed, they traveled on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He built it back and put it in its right place. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. It was wide and it was deep. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. So he built the altar. He repaired the altar. He got the wood together. He sacrifices the bowl and puts the bowl in place. He digs his trench around it. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Soak the, wa- soak the bowl, soak the wood and soak the ground. And he said, now do it a second time. They did it a second time. And now remember, he's on the top of a mountain in a very dry area, and they happen to be in a drought. And he says, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. My guess is these people hadn't seen that much water in one time in one place since the drought began. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That's what they had done to Baal. They had said the same thing, but now he's talking to God. 
that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God didn't just send fire. God sent holy fire. He sent fire that burned the bull and burned the wood. But as it came from heaven, it would have torched the bull before it even got to the wood. But when it hit the wood, it wasn't done because it burned up the stones and it burned up the ground. It burned up the dust and it burned up the water. I wonder sometimes if if we would have been there that day, it's almost like it would have been just like glazed glass on the top of Mount Carmel. And then he says, now go get those prophets and kill them. Going to put an end to this this fake religion around here. Elijah is literally having a mountaintop experience. God didn't just show up. God showed up in an incredibly big way, in a way that was far greater than what Elijah even asked for. He's having this incredible moment. But then what happens in verse chapter 19, after God sends rain, Ahab goes back and he talks to his evil wife Jezebel and he told her all that he had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, so may the gods do to me and more. These are the gods that didn't show up, that didn't listen, that couldn't do anything. This is who this threat is being made on. May the gods do to me and more if I don't make my life as one of them uh, Excuse me, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, if I don't kill you the same way you killed all of them. And his answer after having been a part of this incredible miracle was that he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there and he he went a day's journey further into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Why in the world is he so concerned? Jezebel just made this threat based on gods who just proved they weren't there. Elijah has just seen the power of God in an incredible way. But she speaks fear into him. And Elijah listens. And as quickly as he had seen it, he forgot what God had done. She wanted nothing more than to kill Elijah. And he knew that she had the power to do it. He knew she could carry that out. And so he runs. And, And that's what happens See, the enemy wants us to be distracted. The enemy wants us to be afraid, afraid of what's real and afraid of what's not. The gods that she was calling on had already been proved not to be real. But he took Jezebel's threat as real just the same. See, the enemy wants us to be afraid of anything and everything that will direct our thoughts toward our fears and distract our attentions and our affections away from God. It's so easy to give fear all of our power. It's so easy to give those voices like Jezebel all of the power and not trust in God and his power at work in us and with us and for us. So Elijah's response was to run. Even in his despair, even in his running, even in his his disobedience, God was with Elijah. God didn't leave Elijah. Uh, Elijah shows us that great men and women of faith can still doubt and fear. 
Elijah had seen incredible things happen, things he could have never imagined on his own. And yet Jezebel's threats immediately following were more powerful than God's power and his promises. And that's what fear does to us. That's what the enemy does with fear. I I bet you can relate. I've seen God at work in incredible ways in this place. In and with and through you and people just like you. Yet it's still so easy to forget all of the good God things and focus on the ungodly things. We, We cling to our fears rather than hold on to God in faith. We become distracted by shadows and wind and waves. And rather than focusing on Jesus, we focus on our fear. So we can be like Elijah and and we can listen to people and run away or we can run to the throne room of our Heavenly Father and put our hope and trust in Him. And that really boils down to our choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to give the fear that we hear and feel and, and think surrounds us all of the power? Or do we know that all the power rests with God? Because the enemy, just like Jezebel did back with Elijah, will use lies and gossip and our own fears. And and all the enemy is going to do is prey on your insecurities in order to confuse and distract and distance us from God and his promises. That's what happened to Elijah. God literally brought Elijah to a mountaintop to display his power. And Elijah had a front row seat. And immediately... Jezebel set out to kill Elijah, and that's all he could think about. So maybe for you, it's the boss is out to get me. I, I failed last time I tried. People hate me. My, my spouse doesn't love me. And then Elijah fears for his life. He's thinking, Je- Jezebel wants me dead, and she means it, and she can do it. And then he believed that he was all alone. He started having a pity party. He thought he was the only one. He told God that he alone was holy and faithful. Maybe for you, it's like nobody understands. I'm trying, but nobody seems to care. I wish I had somebody who would listen to me, who would understand, woe is me. I'm the only one who loves God, and I'm the only one who worships him correctly. I'm the most faithful, and I'm the most holy. And we can fall into that, and the enemy is pushing that thought in our mind, just like with Elijah. But that's a bunch of baloney. God shows Elijah. He tells him, you're not alone. I didn't leave you all alone, man. He gives him numbers of how many people are still out there. It's easy for us to exaggerate our own holiness when, in fact, God alone is holy. Even Christians, we can be arrogant and prideful and self-righteous, all while we're convincing ourselves we're doing the Lord's work. That's what Elijah did. And all it took was Jezebel to rattle his cage. He wanted to die, didn't think he wanted to go on. The world would be better off without me, he said. So he lay down and slept. He goes to a broom tree and he lays down and he sleeps. I've, uh, I've heard a lot of messages on this one saying that what Elijah really had was clinical depression. Maybe that's true. Maybe he did. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. But I bet you you've had days when you just didn't want to get out of bed and face the day. You just, you just didn't want to get up and you didn't want to go have to face down whatever it was that you were facing. See, what the Bible does tell us is that Elijah was tired. Elijah's body was tired from running. Elijah's body was tired from from the stress. Elijah's body was tired from thinking about all this fear. His mind is tired thinking about all the things that might happen if Jezebel's threat comes to life. And his soul is tired because he's believing the lies 
of the enemy. He's believing the lies of Jezebel instead of trusting in God. That's why Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you a rest. Elijah lay down because he was tired and he needed rest. He was filled with fear. And here's the thing. Fear is real. God's power is real. But a fear is real too. And Jezebel, she was real. And the spirit of Jezebel is still alive at work in the world today. It isn't her, but it's all the things that caused her to say and do the things that she did in her lifetime. I've read a couple of, gone back to, read a couple of books uh, lately. A guy named Francis Frangiopane. One of them is called The Jezebel Spirit. This is what's going on here and making him afraid. The other one is called Exposing the Accuser of the Brethren. She, she went after Elijah as a, as a prophet, as a man of God. And yet, sometimes what we hear is the fear. Jezebel continues to prowl the earth, working through people to destroy the work that God is doing by trying to destroy the men and women of God, just like Jezebel did to Elijah. So it's easy to to say that, like Elijah, I'm the only one. I'm doing everything right. Everything you asked me for, God, I've done it all. Look at how good I am. And Elijah knew full well that what he was doing wasn't pleasing to God. See, but despite his sin and despite ours, God doesn't abandon us. He comes to Elijah. He walks alongside us. He goes before us. He walks behind us. And he lives within us. And in Elijah's life, he had seen God do some incredible things. God provided for him in some amazing ways. God used a widow to feed him. God used ravens and angels to sustain Elijah. God provided for him even as Elijah ran away. So do you recognize the provision and the angels that God sent you when you are fear-filled and running away? Maybe it's a call from a friend from years ago. Maybe it's a pastor from when you were a kid. Maybe it was somebody at work that just stops and has a conversation with you. Or maybe someone from work. Someone new from out of the blue. But God revealed himself to Elijah. See, but what we're going to find out is when God revealed himself to Elijah, he wasn't where Elijah expected to see him. And maybe in your fear, and you're screaming out and crying out in desperate prayers for God to show up, maybe we get caught up looking for God in the places where we want to see him, where we expect to find him. It doesn't mean that God is going to be there, but it doesn't mean that God isn't there waiting for us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9, Elijah's up in the mountains, and he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think that's so interesting. Remember all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned the first time, and they recognized their sin? And it says that they hid from the Lord God. And what does God do? God comes to the garden, and he says, Where are you? Why are you hiding? God comes after Adam and Eve because God wanted a relationship with them. What's God doing with Elijah? He's coming after him and talking to him because he wants a relationship with him. Despite his fear, despite his weakness. God does the same thing with you and I. He doesn't let go. He comes to us where we are and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been 
very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And even I, only I am left, and they will seek my life to take it away. Woe is me. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Because he's in a cave, and he didn't want to be out in the world. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces. Uh, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Sometimes we expect that God is going to show up when we need him in loud ways, obvious ways, ways that we absolutely know it has to be God, but sometimes not. And it's interesting that those three things passed by and Elijah stayed hidden in the cave. It wasn't until that gentle whisper that Elijah knew something there had changed. Then he came out. The winds came. You know, Peter and the other disciples stood in that boat and they were terrified. Waves and winds and here comes Jesus walking across the water. Sometimes God is right there in the wind, but he wasn't in this wind. And the earthquake came. It says that when God descended on Mount Sinai, the ground shook. There was an earthquake. But God wasn't in this earthquake. And then the fire came. Elijah had just seen the fire from heaven come down on the top of Mount Carmel. And it burned the, the bowl that was the offering, the rocks, the wood, the sand, in the water. But God wasn't in this fire. Then came the quiet, gentle sound that told him God was near. In Hebrew, the best, the best translation isn't actually even a, a, a gentle whisper. The best translation of this word out of Hebrew is the crushing or deafening silence. After all that noise, it was so quiet that Elijah didn't hear anything. And he knew that was God. See, sometimes when we need to hear from God and it seems that God is silent, could it be that God isn't silent, but our minds are just too cluttered with other noise and fear to hear him? That God's there waiting all along. Where are you? Why are you here? God came to Elijah not in the natural events that would only cause him more fear. God showed up in the deafening silence, the crushing quiet. Isn't that just like God to be the, the calm in the middle of our storms? Because my guess is what Elijah really wanted was powerful God to show up. And it was silent God that showed up. God who is the sea of tranquil water in the midst of our life of chaos and turmoil. God who is our peace and our comfort and our advocate and our defender. And whatever your faith, whatever your fears, Whatever the voices that you're hearing, whatever Jezebel is chattering away in your ear, you need to understand something. God never left Elijah, and God will never leave you. We live in a world that has got so much fear around us. It's all we're told. It's perpetuated. It's handed to us. We're told we have to believe it. God never left Elijah, and God will never leave you. Maybe what you need today is that peace of God that passes all human understanding. 
You're not going to find that on your own. You're not going to make it up. You're not going to create it. You're not going to will it into existence. Maybe what you're looking for is a word from God. You're in luck. The Bible's full of them. They're called promises. Promises like God will renew your strength when you're weary and tired and don't have any. God will never forsake you. God's love for you never fails. God has redeemed you in Jesus. God will fight for you. God will forgive us of our sins when we confess and repent them before him. And God will set us free. God is for you and God is with you. And yet so often all that we listen to is the voice of fear. We hear it on the news. We read it in the paper. Everywhere we turn, there's something else that we should be afraid of. And yet God is with us. And if God is with us, who can stand against him? See, God sustained Elijah with God's mighty and miraculous power, with his constant provision, and with his promises. The very same God that did all of that for Elijah is the same God that we worship and serve today. And he will do the very same thing for you and me. All we need to do is trust him and live in his strength, not in our fears. Let's pray. God, thank you for Elijah. Thank you that he just saw such incredible miracle time after time after time for you, from you. But then, God, what we can really relate to is that he ran away because he was scared. And the lesson in that is that you're not going to leave us. You're, you're not going to leave us. You're not going to forsake us. That you are there for us just like you were there for Elijah. And so, God, help us to be people in the power of your Holy Spirit who trust in you, who trust in your power, who trust in your provision, and who trust in your promises, no matter what the fears of this world might tell us to believe. We know that you have it all in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.